Hey everyone, Mark Olson here. I wanted to share some thoughts about one of the hardest parts of dealing with this Hamas war against Israel. In fact, with the whole subject of Israel and its enemies. And that is that so much of it feels too intense and morally overpowering to even process. This history is alternately too horrible and too sublime, too black and white, too utterly stark, too morally unambiguous. It doesn't fit into the the stories we're used to in modern times, stories that are nuanced and shaded with gray. We're not used to bad guys who are this evil. We're not used to protagonists who are acting with this level of self-defense. We're not used to battle lines that are this clearly drawn and with stakes this high. This narrative is unlike any other in the human experience. And by the way, this is a really powerful evidence that it, this narrative is what it claims to be and who it claims to be about. But it also causes problems. Ordinary people, again, have trouble processing things of this nature. Take the Holocaust. Even people who aren't overtly anti-Semitic struggle to really deal with the reality of something that evil. It's one reason why it wasn't identified and dealt with while it was still happening. People knew the Nazis hated Jews. They knew the Nazi ideology wanted them gone. But a factory? A massive industrial complex built for the sole purpose of exterminating human beings? Not only is there no historical precedent for something like that, but our minds aren't even wired to be able to imagine such a thing. And so when it happens... We may or may not deny it, but we push it out of our minds. We start to play games with the facts and rationalize, explain. And in general, we just fail to calculate the depths of what it means. And now the world's facing this again. Thanks to the streaming video and Hamas's insane urge to document and broadcast their crimes, we're now having to process in a clearer way than ever before how in the world alleged human beings can treat each other with this kind of brutality and savagery, the kind we saw on October 7th. I mean, hatred is one thing. Even genocidal hatred, we understand. But what Hamas did ranks among some of the most evil and foul deeds in all of human history. So, is there an explanation? Can a century-old feud over just real estate really explain the whole thing? I say no. There is a reason, and once you know how clear it is, you'll see why these events are such an obvious confirmation of the narrative that's in the Bible. Because I say, it starts all the way back at the beginning, the inciting incident for the plot of all humanity, the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. And it's probably no surprise that it starts with a grudge, a spiritual being who lives in Eden with God and us, was nursing a grievance against the Creator. And it turned into a full-blown rebellion and conspiracy. And when he realized that he couldn't overthrow his enemy, he did the next best or worst thing. He got to the enemy's children, in, in this case, the human race, Adam and Eve. And it's interesting that this enemy knows physically killing or even torturing Adam and Eve is not the most painful thing he can do to their creator. The most painful thing is to turn them against him. So he 
shares with them his twisted false narrative about the nature of God, and he entices them to violate the one absolute rule God has given them, and that changes everything for the rest of human history. We call it the fall. And when God comes down to pronounce judgment in Genesis 3, he says to the enemy, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, her seed will deal you a fatal blow, while your seed will deal hers a grievous injury. Now, seed here is the word sperma. It's not the seed of a plant. It's an actual bloodline. It's the seed of a physical as well as spiritual offspring. So we know who the seed of the woman is. It's us, the human race. But what is the seed of the serpent, of the enemy? Well, three chapters later, we get the answer. Rebellious spiritual beings come down to earth at Mount Hermon in northern Israel, and they take human wives. And while they're quickly punished and exiled for their sin, they leave behind an offspring that creates massive problems for the human race. And you have to realize that all over the planet, nearly every indigenous culture has legends of giant, mutated, cannibalistic, unspeakably savage beings who tormented them, the seed of the woman, for eons. There's good reason to believe that the carnage and the spiritual darkness of this alternate race is actually the main reason God sent the flood and hit the reset button on humanity. It's also the reason why much of the early Old Testament is filled with genealogies. All those so-and-so begat so-and-sos that we complain about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's also why Israel's leaders warned so often against intermarrying with some of the Canaanite cultures who were descended from this dark race and mixed with its bloodlines. If you want to know the ultimate reason why, notice that Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, opens with the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus was God's redemptive union with the human bloodline, and the woman who participated, Mary, could not have a single drop of the enemy's seed inside her. But that's getting ahead of our story. For us, let's go back to the Arabian Peninsula days after the children of Israel crossed over, thanks to God's first great miracle on their behalf, the parting of the Red Sea. They are soon attacked without provocation by a band of, of all things, long-lost cousins. They are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's embittered brother. While Jacob was renamed Israel and moved down to Egypt, Esau and his descendants stayed behind, and they fell into a pair of spiritually very dangerous traps. First of all, they nursed their grievance over centuries. Second, they intermarried with the enemy's offspring, and they invited its hatred and its evil nature into themselves. And the resulting stew was so toxic that by the time the children of Israel showed up, they attacked them savagely and cruelly. Non-biblical Jewish lore says that these people, who were known by the name of their king, Amalek, first took some prisoners among the men, sodomized them, castrated them, then they captured the women, children, elderly, and the sick, and did similar things to them. Sound familiar? From then on, the Amalekites became the arch-nemesis of the children of Israel. God himself would pronounce, I will wage war against Amalek from generation to generation. And this insane savagery 
this genetic bloodlust against Jews, would be given a name in Jewish culture, the spirit of Amalek. The spirit of Amalek is unlike any ancestral feud or war known to humanity. But remember, its roots lie squarely in the soil of Eden and the grudge between one spiritual being and his creator, and we're just proxies in that conflict. So this war between God and his enemy and God's seed and his enemy's seed will continue on until the nation of Israel chooses its first king. When they crown Saul against God's warnings, he gives Saul one mission to carry out, to prove his worthiness to the throne, and that's to finish off the Amalekites completely, to wipe them from the face of the earth. And by the way, if that sounds harsh, just remember the nature of this enemy. Think of the Terminator. Even when it's melted down into droplets, these droplets reassemble and reform again and resume their hunt against us. This is a war of extermination, meaning I have one purpose here on earth to hunt you down, torture you and kill you. I will do this unless and until you kill me first. Remember the opening lines of the Hamas charter. Israel will exist until it is obliterated by Islam. This kind of enemy leaves you no moral ambiguity, no room for compromise or even mercy. It's the epitome of kill or be killed. Saul, however, lets his insecurity get in the way of this, and so he saves the Amalekite king named Agag as a spoil of war to give to Samuel, the prophet of God. And that's a terrible mistake, and it'll cost him the crown. Jewish legend has it that one of Agag's concubines snuck into his tent for a conjugal visit. And so even though Agag died the next day, his bloodline lived on, and so did the spirit of Amalek. 400 years later, and thousands of miles away, an exiled Jew would spark the anger of a hot-headed palace insider in the royal palace of the kingdom of Persia. And this man, named Haman the Agagite, or descendant of Agag, um, considered his revenge against this single Jew and found his soul filled with something bigger, an insane obsession with killing not just the man, but his entire race. This is the story of Mordecai and Esther, and we know how it ends. Not only does God thwart Haman's plan in a way that's so overwhelming, it's almost comical, but on the day of the Jews' scheduled extermination, they're armed with a royal decree that lets them defend themselves, and they don't mess around. They know the homicidal nature of their enemies. They slaughter their would-be annihilators, and they celebrate this incredible victory with a holiday that's known as Purim. Now, there's a verse that's traditionally read during Purim that makes it so clear. It's Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, quote, Remember what Amalek did to you on the road as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you by the road, attacked those in the rear, those who were exhausted and straggling behind when you were tired and weary. He did not fear God. Therefore, when Adonai, your God, has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land, and Adonai, your God, is giving you as your inheritance to possess, you are to blot out all memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And it's interesting that Israel's enemies would also take that, not only that verse, but the name Purim as the name of a spirit that's warring against them. A couple thousand years later, another leader, an earthly leader poisoned by a lifelong grudge against Jews, would take power. 
and he would start to carry out another attempt to exterminate them. And it's fascinating to note that as he started his campaign, the first part of their culture he attacked was the festival of Purim. Hitler left Passover and Yom Kippur and all the other festivals alone, but he made Purim any celebration of it, promotion of it, even the possession of a book of Esther, punishable by death. The lineage of its hatred could not have been more clear. Hitler had become infected, literally possessed, by a bloodlust that went back to Amalek, which then went back to Jacob and Esau, and eventually to the Garden of Eden. In a speech made on November 10th, 1938, the day after Kristallnacht, which was that first horrible night of rioting against Jews, a prominent Nazi named Julius Stryker said, quote, Just as the Jew butchered 75,000 Persians in one night, the same fate would have befallen the German people had the Jews succeeded in inciting a war against Germany. The Jews would have instituted a new Purim festival in Germany. Close quote. After the war, after the Nuremberg trial, Stryker looked down at the witnesses against him. And as he was led to the gallows, he had one thing to say. Purim Fest 1946. In other words, he understood that the spirit of Purim had just overwhelmed the spirit of Amalek. And by the way, the date of his execution, October 16, 1946, felt on the Jewish festival of Hoshana Rabbah, and that's the traditional day when all of God's verdicts are sealed. So this brings us forward to October 7, 2023, and the unspeakable acts perpetrated by Hamas. What they did was not a military action. It did not serve a strategic purpose, although it might have served the agenda of Iran. But what Hamas did for themselves was to follow an ancient bloodlust that was fed by centuries of grievance and grudge and the demonic power of humanity's ultimate and oldest enemy. I think that is the explanation. And if you ever wondered how relevant the Bible truly is to our world today, if its narrative has any meaning or resonance for our world, or whether the God of that Bible is actually still moving in human affairs or human history, these recent events are your emphatic answer. The Bible is still more than relevant. It gives us the only meaningful answers to the unexplainable madness of what human beings are doing to each other. And these events, as terrible as they are, represent a clearly new and bold chapter being written by a strong hand by the author of the human race. And that's why I say to you, Shalom. Rest in the peace of God and the assurance of his power.